Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today I have a very favorite guest of mine, a rock star of investments and someone who's really a hoo-hoo in the investment world. So uh, today I have a founder president of Diamond Equity uh, and Mr. Dan Breslin. Uh, thank you, Dan, for taking time today to join. I appreciate your time today and welcome to the show. And you want to give a brief background, um, uh, Dan, about you know where you started, where you at with uh, your company today? Yeah, for sure. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to come on and share this time with you and the, the listeners of the show, Sakar. I, uh, I got my start. I was in Philadelphia flipping houses since 2006. Before that, nothing really worked. I was a car salesman, would be bouncing around from jobs. So I did pick up sales skills and had a bunch of those entrepreneurial kind of things going along uh-huh. the way. Um, in Philadelphia, it took until 2013, 2014, a lot of trial, a lot of error, the ups and downs of the market, the ups and downs of my personal habits in life during that time. Uh And, uh, we finally started to get some traction in Philadelphia, some consistency, and we put together a good team. I looked around, my daughter was living in Chicago, uh, up until that point since like, you know, early two thousands when she moved out there. So it was always like back and forth on the planes. Being a dad, you know, one weekend a month, it's not like uh, having anybody who has kids could probably imagine. It's not like you would, you know, the ideal situation. So in 2014, you know, team on the ground in Philadelphia, that's when I picked up, moved to Chicago, mm-hmm. and we started doing business in Chicago, and then we expanded some other markets, but we finally landed on Atlanta, Chicago, and Philadelphia, primarily because we have good teams there, um, but also they're solid, stable large enough markets for us to operate the business that we do, which is uh, wholesaling and fixing and flipping houses. We do two to 300 deals per year. Uh, At any given time, we're in the middle of 75, 80 addresses, which are like under contract, uh, owned and being being renovated. We refer to those as our REOs uh, and then waiting to settle. So we might have 25 deals waiting to go to closing that are like sold and we're waiting to capture our profit. Um, as you can imagine, it takes a team of uh, not including contractors. There's about 16 partners, I think, on the team. And I like to develop not employees, Sakar. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, my philosophy was more to develop like real estate investment partners, if sure. you will. So like, I like to kind of think of it more like a law firm where people are making partner and we're kind of having ownership in the decisions. People are expected to bring capital to the table when things go wrong and you know they share equally in the, in the profits when things go right. Um, so that kind of comprises the business here today. Wow, wow. You certainly have a lot going on. And it's interesting, the model of your team uh, there, uh, Dan, is I think everybody's at probably at an equal level. Everybody's hustling and everybody's equally vested in terms of, hey, we got to 
make the make this work, scale this up. And it's impressive that you have that many deals under contract, that much, you know, renovations going on and things like that. Wow. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, so Dan, uh, speaking about fix and flip and these different markets that uh, you have, how do you go about, uh, you know, sort of picking your uh, sort of best cities to invest and how do you look for signs in the market that, hey, for example, Philadelphia looks great uh, and, you know, come Q2, that may not, you know, you may see deals drying out and then you may have to shift to, let's say, uh, you know, some other market in Ohio or in Georgia for that matter. So how do you look for some signs within the market that you pick your deals at? For me, it's less about the market and it's more about the people who are working in the market. So when mm -hmm. I was in Philadelphia, the reason I invested in Philadelphia is because I lived there. So I could drive sure. to the rehab. I could go right. buy their paint. I could mow the lawn. I could do whatever I needed to do if I had to get in, roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty. And I did early on. I did a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I believe that being present in the market for me is a more effective strategy for investment than trying to chase growth in a the marketplace. There's typically one requirement for me I see to succeed, a metropolitan area of 5 million people or greater. Mm -hmm. So in Baltimore alone, where we went into and failed, we didn't quite have the, <clears throat> um, the momentum or the size of the marketplace to really sustain at least our business model at the time. I'm sure you can develop and do enough deals there and succeed. It didn't work for the way our business model was set up at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but Philadelphia, Chicago, Atlanta, inside mm -hmm. each of those markets, Atlanta's a growth market. For anyone around the country listening, there's population moving there. It's pro jobs. They're attracting a lot of corporate. You know, job creation is strong. Population sure. mm -hmm. is strong. And there's a limited amount of inventory. So it, it's good for the single family investment market pricing on the rise right. over the last five years. Um, but it, even in Atlanta, but in Philadelphia and Chicago, there's certain neighborhoods and, and price points where like I prefer to buy when I do buy single family rentals, I'll keep a couple of them kind of like my own savings account sure. uh, just to put the money you know, aside so it's not losing value in a savings account, literally. Right. Uh, but I'll try to buy properties in advance of gentrification. So like areas that have changed over historically have been like trending from lower income crime infested neighborhoods to uh, becoming more homeowner driven and less um, landlord and, and, you know, section eight kind of driven neighborhoods, crime disappears, prices like in Philadelphia in one area started out, you know, um, depending on how far back you go. I know guys that bought them for $5,000 and they're worth $500,000 today. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I have properties I bought, you know, two years ago for 65,000 and um, I could sell them without having to do any capital increases for like 120,000 in just wow. a period of like two to three years. Wow. Um, if I were to do like renovation complete, you know, top to bottom, I can probably mm -hmm. get close to 200,000, maybe more. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I bought them, Sakar, it felt like I was paying like retail price, like a premium. It was like too much money for me. It's like, I'm used to buying properties. I could like fix them up, flip them and sell them immediately. Like six months from now, that's kind of our business model. So like to buy mm -hmm. these a hotter area gentrification tracks. It's like I had to get a little uncomfortable and pay my mind too much. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. like market price, you know? Right, right. And I, I actually, there are always those areas, Dan, that you always feel that, geez, compared to 
you know, what your favorite strategy is or favorite market, uh, you know, sort of the neighborhood is, you, you sort of gravitate towards better neighborhoods. And of course, you're paying more because obviously those properties are worth more. And that's something personally that has happened to me. We, you know, here in Baltimore area, we own uh, over a couple of hundred rentals uh, mixed between, you know, apartments, single family and townhouses and things like that. And that's one thing I have noticed is that the performance of your portfolio is strongly tied towards, you know, occupancy and cash flow that you uh, resultantly generate. And that occupancy in these neighborhoods is pretty much tied to uh, you know, more has to do with how great the neighborhood is. Of course, your house has to be nice. But of course, sometimes, you know, if you have a great house in a bad neighborhood, you will still experience those turnovers, you know. And I have had that happen like back back in the days that used to happen to, to me. And then, you know, we went on, uh, you know, having houses in safer and much nicer neighborhoods. And suddenly we saw that whole momentum shift. And all we did is just keep on buying in those pricier neighborhoods as long as the cash flow numbers worked. Um, you know, we were, we were still buying it and compared to, you know, a lot of other investors, our numbers were probably a little thinner, but then, you know, as, as they said, you know, the slower you move, but the more consistent you are, your run rate and your average, uh, you know, becomes better. That's what happened to us. And now we're at a point where, you know, out of like a couple of hundred of these houses, I mean, we, we rarely have like two or three vacancies, which really is, uh, you know, very minuscule compared to it. So very good. I appreciate you sharing that, uh, Dan. And um, regarding your fix and flips, how do you go about that? Like meaning, let's say if, uh, you are in these different markets and you have teams, like are there any like specific price points you look for and how you go about like rehab job or, you know, what are the like sort of the characteristics that you look at, uh, look in your deals? So we're recording this right now on March 22nd, 2019. And the stock market tanked like 400 points, I think, earlier today already. Oh, so the sky was falling, right? Um, I think just like a lot of people, there's some sense of correction. There's some corporate debt bubbles. I don't feel like the single family space is going to cave like it happened in 2008, 2009. I think that's once in a lifetime low price for single family because right. we have baby boomer, I'm sorry, uh, uh, millennials coming of age where apartments are no longer going to suit them as they marry and they have children a little later than their parents did as a generation, but there's a tide shift uh, working against apartments. Um, that tide shift buying houses, for me, my observation is that they're buying the houses that I'm selling somewhere in a two to three, maybe $400,000 range, depending on the income, the area, the city. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're like very, very still good deals um in my opinion and lower risk than say in a 800 900 million dollar homes Absolutely. which were hot a couple years ago for a short period of time which i think will get hot again probably in 10 or 15 years to millennials reach peak earning years and start to do like another level of move up from the apartment to the starter homes now to the million dollar larger five six thousand square foot homes maybe even in the suburbs we'll see a little bit of a trend in my opinion later on 15 right. years. Um, so I like the price points where I could sell something, renovate it uh, anywhere from, you know, we'll do something, we'll grab it. It will sell for 50,000 after we just do like uh, some moderate upgrades to the kitchen, cleaning it up, painting it, mm -hmm. make it habitable. Something maybe we bought for 10, 15,000, put like five, 6,000 in and we sell it for 50. 
For mm-hmm. us, it's about somewhat satisfying the client, the seller who came to my company. My mm-hmm. company is a direct home buying company. That's how we serve the marketplace mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just we're an investor. So we're profit driven, yes, but we're also trying to satisfy the market of clients that come to us with their house, their problem situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we also, obviously, we would flip houses due to kitchens, baths, things like that. I really don't like to get into jobs where I need to do architectural plans and get the approvals from the city. Oh yeah, that gets expensive, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's expensive, so I have two risks there. I have one is the risk of the expense of construction. So if 100 sure. to 200 or $300,000 renovation, which is, I have little friends doing this stuff all over in Chicago, mostly these higher end rehabs, 300,000, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a 10% deviation is $30,000 and it could go even, you know, further than 10% deviation. Absolutely. Um, the second risk that you would have beside the cost of construction going up would be the time risk. So if I'm going right. to wait three months, four months, six months for my approvals to even begin and everybody listening, whether you're doing construction or not, knows it's going to take longer to do a $300,000 reno than a $55,000 renovation. Absolutely. Those yeah, holding so costs add up so much, you know. It's, it's, yeah, not only the holding costs, but where are the interest rates 18 months from now, Sakar? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you. And also, Dan, uh, speaking of the deals in these different markets, how do you go about marketing, advertising your services, and also, like, you know, perhaps uh, do you have any insight into, like, how investors can look into, like, sourcing uh, similar deals uh, if somewhere someone were to say that, hey, I want to wholesale and fix and flip maybe 50 houses. Do you have any tips for them? Like, how do you go about uh, that? I think we are in a unique spot that we came online a little while ago and doing huge volume takes huge money. And you also have to have a huge team who's going to work the influx of leads because it's not an easy game. Uh, When you're advertising, you know, for direct to seller, uh, our budget's $100,000 in some months plus. So wow. $100,000, $125,000 is not unreasonable. $150,000 in one month, maybe in the month of May, um, in the peak season, is not is not unrealistic. Right. That money's going to take three to seven months, maybe even longer, to get back through the cycle and come sure. back in the machine. Mm-hmm. So we, we kind of have you know a little bit of a momentum working in our favor where we're getting calls from letters we sent eight years Previously. ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. But but what what I would say is there's something to be said for hand selecting, finding the right deals and a lower number of deals. So mm-hmm. yeah, we built this huge team, Sakar. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it becomes and, and I'm grateful and I'm blessed to have all these people in my life and have this thing going. Sure. But sometimes there's a certain weight of like running that entire machine and keeping that thing uh, fed. There's a whole lot of people who are expecting. Sure, there's, there's overhead involved, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, hand selecting the right deals in the right areas and really getting clear on what your investment philosophy is mm-hmm. as a fix and flipper, I think would be key. I also, in my opinion, think that wholesaling is, in, is, is a little bit in trouble. So in 2016, we did more wholesaling than we're doing flips and we're intentionally driving all of us toward better skill level when it comes to Mm -hmm. hiring contractors and running construction Mm -hmm. because uh, where we saw the hard money coming online, you know, these institutional hard money at really low rates, people are flipping houses for lower rates of return and the wholesale fees kind of got a little bit crazy. They got a little bit like out of whack. So in 2016, 2017, the wholesale fees were much, much higher Mm -hmm. and 
people were paying like numbers that didn't make as much sense because the market was going up. But we're right. in a position now in 2019, the market's going to level. It's not going to continue to go up the way that it's been. That's unsustainable. Right. We would agree. Um, but now we're going to see that same thing where people have gotten hurt who bought too much money. So now these whole, the guys buying the wholesale deals from wholesalers have to pay less money. So where wholesale fees got to $30,000 in a lot of cases, we're wow. seeing a return to five, six, seven thousand $7,000. And now it's unsustainable too, Sakar, to do the kind of marketing since there's so much competition. It's seven to $10,000 in marketing to get one deal, but the average fee is 7000 Right, right. So, so are you, you know, are you in a position to do five break-even deals, and then on the sixth deal you make seventeen thousand extra from the break-even? Maybe not like the best model. So I think it would be more wise to just target and focus right to flipping houses and being good at the whole, you know, real estate investment deal, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to just come out and do wholesale deals uh, only. Right, right. It's it. It sounds like I think as the market shifts you go from a volume dealer sort of uh, wholesaling lot of deals to, you know, when the market gets hot, I think you're shifting to saying that, hey, I'm gonna like probably handpick few deals and still do like limited quantity, but still, you know, uh, make enough profit to sustain. Would that be a correct characterization then? It is, and like the wholesale deals, the way the splits work in the team, like people on the team are making money and we're offsetting our marketing costs, but yeah, we're really out there, you know, looking for the trophy fish. We're looking for the marlin of a deal we could hang on the wall, like, you know, $70,000 profit deals. So we have to, you know, do two, 200, 300 deals to find, I don't know, 15 of those deals throughout the course of a year. Right, 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 makes sense. So. Uh, I have a follow-up question around this in terms of, you know, the volume of business that you did, or rather the correct way to say is this, like over the years, the way you scaled your business, right? So you went from, let's say, one marketplace to a few marketplaces. Now you have systems around, you have a budget around. Would you mind sharing list, uh, with our listeners, like some of the lessons you have learned along the way that what things to do, what not to do, that would be something very valuable to listen to. Yeah, I think I shared and kind of alluded to some of them. So what not to do would be to think like, oh, I know a guy in Houston, Texas. I'm going to just expand to Houston, Texas. Right. Uh, here, it's a hot market in Atlanta. I know some guy on Facebook. I'm going to go in. We're going to do Atlanta. So I think I tried to expand too fast, too soon. Um, I mean, we're at a great place right now. And people are probably sitting back. Yeah, the guy's in three different markets. And, you know, that's what I should probably do, too. Right. Um, mm -hmm. maybe if you have the right people in place there, that that mm -hmm. would work. But, uh, we lost a lot of money going into a lot of different markets. So I would not try to expand into too many different markets looking back. Um, you know, I, I failed in Baltimore. You're successful in Baltimore. You're in Baltimore the way I was in Philly and that's why I chose Philly. And so it makes sense to start sure. where you are. And like, unless you're in, you know, a very, very sparsely populated area, mm -hmm. uh, I would suggest starting and mastering the deals of some sort in your backyard. I mean, you know, uh, there's billionaires who are investing in real estate in Baltimore, just as they are in Chicago and Los Angeles and New York City. Yeah, right. yeah and so it's, it's just a matter of really mastering that niche market. Whereas, you know, my mistake was not recognizing how important it was to actually mm -hmm. master these different markets. And I'm still nowhere near 
a master of, you know, these are seven, eight counties we do in Chicago. That, that, that's a big area. <laughs> seven, six, seven counties in Philadelphia. We're in nine yeah. counties in Atlanta. So like I'm nowhere near even scratching the surface of mastery of those marketplaces. And right. I learn new things every day about every one of the, you know, one of the areas, every one of the areas that we're currently in. I know. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I mean, real estate in general, as we know, is, you know, just your core knowledge and exactness of, you know, the, the details of that marketplace. And speaking of Baltimore, for example, I was actually uh, a sort of a advisor, for lack of a better word, to a very large Blackstone related uh, group that was uh, that had actually purchased assets in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, going through the due diligence of what they had purchased and what they were planning to list, uh, they, they, they were lacking in their knowledge in terms of, uh, you know, what the deals were trading at. But the reality of it is was there were other forces uh, that were driving as to why they were listing uh, their properties at a, uh, you know, at a price that they were listing. And eventually they, they could not sustain because, as you said, that knowing the exact marketplace and playing in that marketplace with respect to, you know, what the cost and what the characteristics are is, is really the key. And uh, speaking of these uh, various teams uh, that you have, Dan, like how, like, what are the elements? Like, do you have uh, like sources on the ground or these like subcontractors or realtors? Like, how is your team? Can you give us some insight uh, in terms of like how you build your teams in various marketplaces? I have a vice president that's basically in charge of everything going on. It would be kind of a COO, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. operating officer on the ground in each market. And they mm -hmm. run a, a team of acquisition managers. An mm -hmm. acquisition manager would be responsible for face-to-face -face making a deal, um, you know, being at the property, managing contractors, and basically running that deal, running point on that deal throughout the entire process with the insight, help, and uh, greater breadth of experience that the vice president typically brings to the table. Sure. Uh, and then of course with me, I mean, I look at every deal that comes in, I look at all, you know, 15,000 plus leads that come in throughout the course of a year. I look at every single one and wow. I know what we're buying. I know if we're wholesaling something, I'm pricing every deal I'm pricing it on the way in. Um, it's the market knowledge that, I, that I've developed that I really try to leverage and make myself available for the team. So like as far as scaling, I feel as though I reach personally mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of a ceiling where it's like a certain place I, I can't seem to like duplicate myself wholly. Sure. And, you know, the, the vice president of the market and everybody, they all still spot the value too. But when like the two or three of us together hop on and look at it, Oftentimes we're seeing some value there and we're seeing like a calculated risk we could take. And it normally pays off with us making a profit where at first glance the car, it looks like no deal. It looks like it's a waste of time. It looks like there's, we would lose money on the deal, but then, you know, somewhere in there, I'm kind of like, no, we're going to trudge forward and take, I'd say that's fully 30 to 40% of the deals we do feel like at first glance, wow. there's not mm -hmm. a deal but we make 15, 20, 25,000 dollars sometimes from those kind of deals. Wow, wow. There's something to be said about, you know, keep pushing on and, you know, try being bold and eventually it comes through. 
Very nice, very nice. And I know, uh, Dan, you have a great podcast, uh, REI Diamond Show, that I am personally a fan of and listen to the great interview experts that you have from time to time. So I would like to, you know, highlight your show. Uh, listeners should take advantage of REI Diamond Show that uh, Dan does, and he's been doing that for many years. Um, so, Dan, do you want to share some uh, interesting insights you learned from your show uh, over the years, like, uh, you know, uh, I know probably you have over the years, I, I know you probably have almost every reputed expert guest on your podcast. So would you mind sharing some stories and, you know, what you learned uh, over the years uh, through your podcast? Well, what I learned is I haven't had all the experts on because you haven't <laughs> been on the show yet. <laughs> um, but uh, in seriousness, it's caused me to... Like I'm an avid listener of many, many podcasts and sure. like variety. So sometimes you land on this guy, sometimes it's a business guy and marketing. Um, but to constantly be consuming information is important for sure. me. The ability to pay attention to what opinions I'm sharing on my show, um, mm -hmm. what stories I'm sharing on my show has helped me to maybe think about my business and basically my life in general in like a higher and higher way because it's in a sense like people are watching. So I think it would be, you know, key if someone's listening and doesn't have a podcast, perhaps you could get the same level of like uh, continuing to evolve from like, you know, keeping a journal or having a mastermind group or uh, for us being in the business where we have all these different partners, you know, this accountability to other people and these other partners has also helped me to grow. So I think, you know, whether it's a podcast or whether it's elsewhere, um, I know that I benefited from, you know, having partnerships with not just like-minded people, uh, but like, you know, different people with different approaches. Um, and it's just helped to just produce a different way of thinking about everything. Um, in addition to that, other lessons that learned from the podcast, it's really been like a mentorship program for me. The questions that I've had the opportunity to ask, I mean, people say like, when you get in the business of real estate, you should, you know, call these guys and ask if you could pick their brain or if you could take them out to coffee and ask them questions. And uh, the podcast has given me a chance to do that and ask these questions of people like you're doing today. And then it's recorded and we share it with the audience. So in a sense, it's like, you know, look, if you're listening to the show today and you're getting started or you're early on, or you might even be like, you know, further along in the game and don't have time to go meet people for coffee. And so I feel like right. these podcasts are like a great platform for uh, kind of accomplishing some of that brain picking and maybe even having somebody else do the, the question and answer for you kind of helps. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, those are valuable lessons. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And also, Dan, uh, speaking about your business in general, like, how your model has evolved, like you've done various strategies so far. So compared to what you were doing before as to what you do now, uh, can you maybe share over the years, like how your models have evolved uh, over the years? Well, I always wanted to flip houses, a car even when I was young. My dad bought a house when I was like nine or 10 years old and we were down there fixing it off together. And, um, which comprised of like 10 year old me whining about wanting to go home and play with my friends <laughs> while he, <laughs> so he did the math with me. So he described you put 10,000, 15 in and he'd go to the bank. His payment was $150 a month. 
and he'd rent it out for $350 a month. And I was doing the paper out at the time and making like $25 for the whole month. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is like the second or third house that he has. He's doing this. This is much better math. So I knew I wanted to do it then, uh, you know, and it took a long time to finally get it under. So I did, I flipped and, you know, wholesale. I never really had much of a strategy until about 2012 when we focused solely on becoming the source of deals. So like, I'm not sure about what your finances look like at the end of the day. You may not be in a position, Sakar, yourself, where you have to keep feeding the machine with deals. But I know people who are flipping houses, um, people who are trying to scale must become a source of deals. So whether that's Absolutely. broker broker relationships, whether that's you know um, direct to seller advertising, whether that's you know note buyer contacts, and you're on LinkedIn and you're developing contacts with these different asset managers. Um, throughout the country, but some way, shape, or form to position yourself to becoming like that source of deals and constantly like connecting and making them work uh, has been like central to my strategy and my success. And then because of some of the risks we talked about in the marketplace, and we talked about the erosion of the wholesale business a little bit from competition and also from, you know, the market stopped going up. So we're seeing this like, you know, kind of like leveling off a little bit. Um, also we're seeing some of the I buyers open doors, the low buying houses. So we have like this national new financial money coming into play where, you know, wholesaling is getting squeezed from many angles. I've intentionally directed our team into flipping more and more of these houses and growing our contractor resources and just the general systems for that. And we're early on in that Sakar. Mm-hmm. I would love to be at a position where we could have 50 or a hundred houses under construction with, you know, 15 crews, 10 crews in each city. We're not, we're lucky to have, I don't know, anywhere from one to five crews cooking in it, you know, in our marketplace that are kind of dedicated for us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we may not even hit that level of scale. I, I really don't know, but it would be probably better because we're even on the deals we are wholesaling. Some of them, we would wholesale because the construction is a little too much for our teams so rather than buy a property, keep it in inventory, wait two months to start construction or even a month. We'll wholesale it out and take, you know, 20% of the total gross on that instead of, you know, capturing the entire amount by pooling it through our machine. Um, so yeah, the, the change in the business model really has been toward flipping the houses and, and adding more value and doing the deals the old fashioned way. Right, right. Oh, well said, well said. And it's it's similar what I have observed here also is that, you know, uh, I mean, personally, I'm pretty much a buy and hold person the whole career of my, uh, that I have had. But I have seen, uh, obviously, as, you know, like, as we all see our network of investors, what they do. And I have always observed that being a wholesaler, the sourcing of deals, uh, becomes a constant machine that you have to keep up with it, whether you're doing postcards, emails, as you said, you know, establishing various relationships, that that always has to continue. Whereas, uh, you know, I was pretty much a dual career of having my IT uh, job that I was. So I'd never had, you know, that much luxury that I could do, you know, different deals, uh, you know, in, in terms of wholesaling and things like that. So, I had always gravitated towards uh, buy and hold. And eventually as the portfolio grew, I kind of quit my job. And uh, I mean, here we are after like owning a couple of hundred houses now, um, you know, I've, I've actually quit my job like five years ago. But as you said, you, you know, I think that challenge is, uh, those gets interesting, that wholesaling. And I think 
uh, even fix and flip has its own challenges that sometimes you just have to identify the right projects. And as you said, sometimes it's better to wholesale the project and uh, make you know less less money rather than trying to eat the whole thing and sitting on that project for several months. I think there's something to be said there. So good. Thank you, uh, Dan. I appreciate your time today. Uh, please tell our listeners how they can, uh, you know, get hold of you and any other interesting projects you may have coming up. Cool. If anyone does want to check out some more, I actually wrote a book and I don't really advertise this. I used to on my podcast. Oh, you could get the free book I wrote. But what I did was I put everything down in the business model, mostly around wholesaling back in 2013 or so. And I did this as like a roadmap or like an introductory so that these business partners who I have today could read through that and get like a framework of my mindset when it came to wholesaling. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a wholesaling course I kind of give for free. It is in a PDF format. And if you, if you check out the podcast, REI diamonds.com, you can sign up for the email there. You won't see anything talking about it, but you will get the link in the email when you sign up. Um, So if you want to check that out, if people have obviously deals or or want to just say hello, there's a form on that site as well that I personally monitor and respond to. So you can always, you know, pop in there at reidiamonds.com and say hello. Absolutely. Thank you. And we will link up your website in your show notes uh, so that, uh, you know, all the uh, audience can take advantage of it. And I appreciate your time today, Dan. It was a pleasure having you. And uh, we'll look forward to, you know, doing more, <laughs> more and more interviews with you uh, as time progresses. So thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Sakar. Thanks to the listeners. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.